Amen. Well, we celebrate God's glory, His power, and in this season of our church life, we're exploring how God brings that glory and power into our lives, into our context, through the Holy Spirit. To do that, we're studying through the book of Acts. If you want to pull out a Bible from either under the seat in front of you or maybe your own that you brought today, turn to Acts chapter 17. I'd love for you to read along as we walk through this because we are essentially reading every verse of the book of Acts this summer. So we have extended readings. Uh, We're really trying to catch the scope of how God worked in that time so that we can understand better how God works in our time. Uh, My name's Dan Jarvis, by the way. If we haven't met, I'd love to talk to you after the service and get to know you. So glad you're joining us today. And you're kind of catching us midstream here in this series we're walking through Acts about how the Holy Spirit works. And, uh, And so to warm up, I have a question for you. And you can look back at whoever you were talking about why you were here earlier when Mike had us do that. Um, I've got another question you can ask that same person. And, uh, and that is maybe along the way you've heard the statement, it's not about you. Okay? Sometimes it's an inspirational statement. Sometimes it's a big elbow from like a spouse or somebody or a parent going, hey, it's not about you. Uh, it might be your employer. It might even be that right now the pastor of your church is saying to you, hey, it's not about you. Okay, so if that's happening to you right now, what does that mean? Uh, What does that statement indicate? Okay, sometimes people say it sarcastically, sometimes it's really serious. So when you hear it, what do you think is really inferred by telling someone that? Okay, so I'll give you 30 seconds to ask your neighbor, hey, what do you think that statement means? Go for it. All right, hopefully that gives all of us an appropriate dose of humility here to get started. And uh, one of the things I've noticed about how life works is I do feel like the more filled I am with God, the less things are about me. Uh, Or maybe we would say the more filled with the Holy Spirit we are, the less filled with our own pride we can be. Because you're going to be filled by one thing or the other. You're either full of yourself or you're full of something else. You're full of the Holy Spirit. So in the book of Acts, we learn how... What it, what it looks like to actually live a life in the Spirit. And we're picking up the story here in, at kind of the height of adventure in this book. Okay, so last week, Pastor Dell was walking through the story of the Philippian jailer and the earthquake, and some people come to Jesus when they hear about him, they embrace the message with openness, other people resist it, people start riots, people are throwing stones, it's, it gets pretty crazy. So we're in the middle of that story The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is spreading around the world at this time in the book of Acts, and each new community it encounters, there's a new result, right? There's some sort of new cocktail of chemical, a reaction that happens, and you don't quite know. Like, you you add Jesus into something, and some people blow up. Other people open up, okay? So let's start in chapter 17. We'll go to verse 16. And here we have Paul and Silas and Timothy. Remember, they're working as a team. Paul had gone ahead to the city of Athens in Greece. Uh, Timothy and Silas were going to catch up. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, the synagogue was kind of like the Jewish church of that time. So that's where the people that were faithful to God's law would meet and talk about it and pray. Not all that different than what we're doing this morning. So Paul went there. He's reasoning with them. He says, and he he also spoke daily in the public square 
to all that happened to be there. Well, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? Others said, ah, he must be preaching about some foreign gods. They took him to the high council of the city. Come, tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that the Athenians, as well as foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Right? So Athens was a little bit like what the Internet was 10 or 15 years ago when there were actually ideas being discussed, right? Now we're just watching pictures of people fall downstairs and people throwing tennis balls into cups and that somehow that's you know, filling our lives. But you know, back in the day, it was a little more sophisticated. And back in Athens, well, they really got into it, right? They would actually meet and discuss philosophy just for the fun of it. So if you think about it, that's a wide open door for the Apostle Paul, who's pretty educated himself. So he can go toe-to-toe with a Stoic philosopher, and he does. Verse 22, Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Now, it's interesting, okay, that's all we know about the, that particular shrine in the Scripture, but there's actually a historical record from the city of Athens that goes back before this time and says that Athens was miraculously delivered from a plague, and it was actually the real God. There was a whole story behind that, but they didn't know God, and they didn't know who to thank for this miraculous deliverance as a city, so they erected an altar to an unknown God. So that had been sitting there in the corner all this time. Paul walks in. He sees all these idols they're worshiping, all this Greek mythology. And then he sees that, and he goes, hey, I want to talk to you about that unknown God. And he does. He, he walks through. Uh, and I think about this, something impressive here is it's not like Paul had prep time. I mean, he's walking into this, you know, pretty highbrow establishment here to talk to the Athenian council, and here's what he says. He is the God, talking about the God of the unknown God, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples. And, and human hands can't serve His needs. He has no needs. He Himself gives life and breath to everything, and He satisfies every need. From one man, He created all the nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and He determined their boundaries. His purpose was that the nations, or the people groups, would seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He's not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Now, so far so good, except for that last sentence. You mentioned the resurrection of the dead to a group of philosophers, and that doesn't compute. 
right? The resurrection of the dead is not logical. The resurrection of the dead is impossible. At least that's what they thought, because it would be supernatural. There's no way you look at life on this earth and figure that out. So when Paul mentions that, now we get the reaction, okay? But it's a mixed reaction. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. And get this, among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So Paul shares this message, and one of the council members actually believes. I think that's amazing. Remember, Paul, he wasn't even in Athens for this particular kind of mission. He was just waiting for his friends. And now this massive window has opened up to share philosophy with the learned men of Athens, and one of them actually trusts in Christ, and then this woman named Demarius, and now, now a few others. So the beginnings of a new church in this place. Well, then it says Paul left Athens, chapter 18, verse 1, and went to Corinth. And we read a lot about Corinth in the New Testament. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, and who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath, Paul, uh, each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust off of his clothes and said, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll preach to the Gentiles. And we see this over and over again in Acts, and we've talked about it in previous chapters, that as Paul would go in, he starts with the, you know, where the people are already sitting there in kind of a church setting and says, let me tell you about the Messiah. Oftentimes, there were open hearts in those settings. Here, there were not. People were insulting him. People weren't listening. So you can almost imagine Paul saying, hey, I love you, but guess what? Nobody's listening. I'm out. Now, just to, to kind of catch the boldness of this, I want you to zoom in on the next verse. Okay? There's a little tidbit here that I think is kind of hilarious. When... Um, uh, I lost the verse, so that was the, not a good setup, right? Um, verse 7, then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. So you imagine Paul saying, look, you're not listening, I'm out, and he just literally walked next door and started talking to the Gentiles that lived there. And remember, for the people that were the you know, the kind of the stodgy Jews that didn't really understand the bigger picture of what, their, what the prophecies all meant, they were still in this zone where you don't even really talk to the Gentiles. So there's one living next door to their synagogue. This is not the person that they would have visited, right? But here, Paul, he just walks right out the door, walks to that guy, says, okay, great, I'll start preaching to the Gentiles here. Now, things get worse for that particular synagogue because look at what happens next, verse 8. Crispus the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. You can almost imagine this, you know, Paul's like, I'm out, you're not listening. And Crispus, who's like been trying to work with these people, he's like, you know what, I'm out too. And he walks out the door. So that synagogue needed to have a board meeting that night, figure out what to do. Um, meanwhile, the gospel was spreading, right? It says, well, many people in Corinth heard Paul, they became believers, they were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and he said, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you. 
for, the people, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became the governor of Achaia, some of the Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of, quote, persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews, if, if this were a crime involving some wrongdoing or serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names about your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. Okay, so now everybody's stirred up. You've got the Gentiles who are stirred up against the Jews. The Jews are stirred up against Paul. It says, the crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. So you go, okay, maybe he was the second in command. Maybe he was like the vice president. Now, now, Now poor Sosthenes, he's on the ropes. And interestingly, if you look, forward in the New Testament, Sosthenes also becomes a believer and helps Paul write one of the letters back to the church of Corinth. You can look that up later. Um, The crowd grabbed him. They beat him right there in the courtroom. Gallio paid no attention. Okay, so just like we've seen in all these other instances, when the gospel shows up, when the preaching of the gospel happens, there's a lot of different reactions that occur. Okay, it says Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that and said goodbye to his brothers and sisters and went to the nearby Uh, Chentria. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow, and then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind, and while he was there, he went to the synagogue once again to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. And then he set sail from Ephesus. The next step was the port of Caesarea, From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then went back to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. So, you know, months are elapsing in these few verses, right? Paul's traveling all around. Sometimes he's spending, you know, kind of like deep dive time discipling people. Other times he's literally stopping at a port, talking to some people, spreading the gospel, then moving on. Meanwhile, verse 24, it says, A Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the Scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria and Egypt. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, and he, thought, or he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. So here you have somebody that he's got it right, like he's got the right doctrine, he's got the right commitment to the Bible, but that he, he didn't really have like the sense of the Holy Spirit's power in what he was doing, so he needed to be upgraded, he needed to understand the fuller picture. So it says, Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. And when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments and public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, so just like we see all throughout the book of Acts, there's a lot of stuff going on. And when I think about what it took for the gospel to spread through all of these different characters, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Um, you know, and some of the new characters like Crispus and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, all of these people, in order to step forward for the gospel, in order to be involved in outreach, they had to set themselves aside. 
That is, they would have missed missed the opportunities that they had if their lives had been oriented around self-focus, right? They had to set themselves aside and say, Lord, you can send me where you want to send me. You can speak through me to whoever you want to speak to. My schedule is yours. My plans are yours. Lord, I'm yours. And it was that surrendered heart, that willingness to look beyond themselves that actually opened the door for all of this adventure that we've been walking through in Acts. So here's a principle that I, I want to kind of grab a hold of. I want, I want to do this personally and, and see where this leads us personally and as a church together. Okay, here it is. Effective outreach begins where self-focus ends. Effective outreach begins where self-focus ends. As if you're focused on yourself, you might walk through a room and not even realize there's all sorts of needs around you, and so you don't reach out, right? And as a church, that could happen as well. A church could get really excited about what's happening inside of its building. Say, man, we've got to get deeper, and we've got to do this better. It's got to be more quality. And, and those will all be good pursuits, right? But if all of the focus is on ourselves, who will we reach out to? Well, nobody, because effective outreach can only begin when our self-focus ends and we start looking at others instead of ourselves. And I see that in all of these stories as they unfold in the book of Acts. That Paul wasn't worried about his legacy. He wasn't worried about the you know, royalties on what he was preaching. He was, Paul, Paul had a whole different vision of just offering himself and saying, everything I've got is all on the table. That's why he could go to one place and walk away the next day. He could go to another place and say, I'm staying here for a year and a half to teach these people. Like, it really wasn't about him. And so every step he was taking was on purpose. So we'll come back to that. A couple things I notice about outreach when it's not about you. One is that you can see every moment as a mission. So when, when life is about you, when your focus is on yourself, then every moment is your opportunity, like, how can I have fun right now? Or how can I get what I want? Or how can I get people to do what I want? How can I get more of what I wish for? But as soon as you shut that off and say, wait a minute, that doesn't even matter. There's more to life than me. That all of a sudden opens doors. And every moment is now a mission. So here's Paul in Athens, you know, one of the leading cities of the time, probably a lot of wealth there, probably fancy hotels, amazing restaurants, cool Parthenons to look at. Paul could have just said, you know what, man, Silas and Timothy are late. I'm going to take the week. I'm going to chill out. I'm going to do some sightseeing and get some needed R&R, and then we'll be back on mission later. Okay, and who knows? Maybe that's that's what he was doing until an opportunity popped up, and what did he start to do? Started to share. Every moment's a mission. So here he is in this place that said, well, if if I'm here, I might as well talk to the Jews and the Greeks, and then if they don't listen, I'll go to the public square and start talking, and that led one opportunity led to another, and pretty soon he's standing before the high council of Athens preaching about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Every moment to him was a mission. None of that was in their plan, right? That wasn't like the mission trip, you know, here's on Tuesday we're going to do that, and Wednesday we're going to... He didn't have a plan like that. He was just following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So you can live that way too. You can say every, every moment. So I'm driving to work. I'm sitting in my classroom at school. I'm eating lunch with somebody. I, I'm, I'm hanging out at, at my home. Like every moment 
can say, Lord, all of this is you, because if it's not about me and it is about you, then all of my time is yours, Lord. It's pretty exciting to see what will the Holy Spirit do in your life if you just let him start working, okay? So that's one observation. Here, here's another one. When it's not about you, you can start conversations about Jesus. See, people that are very into themselves don't generally talk about Jesus because it doesn't really make sense for them to do that. It would take the focus off of them, right? That, it would kind of defeat their purpose of self-focus. And so, but when it's no longer about you, you walk into a situation and you think, how could I serve the people that I'm talking to? Well, they may not be well served by hearing about you. Uh, the, the best thing you could probably do for them is introduce them to some sort of pathway to start learning about God and their purpose in life and what Jesus came to do. Um, so here, Paul starts doing that everywhere he goes. You keep noticing that. And, and he gets to the Athenian council, and they're, they're saying, wow, you're saying some strange things. We want to know what it's all about. Now, for me, one of the things that I assume in my mind that I know is not true is I assume that everybody has a closed heart to talking about Jesus. You ever think that way? Like you think, man, if I open my mouth about this, if I tried to share, like, what if, what will they really think? What if they reject me? I don't know, what if they don't? I'm not even sure what we're really afraid of, but we, all, we think that there's all these big barriers out there. My actual life experience with this is that a lot of people are really willing to have conversations. That America is actually not all that different than Athens was back then. That if you want to start a conversation, it doesn't mean people are starting out agreeing with you, but they're probably willing to listen, especially if you start from your own testimony like Paul did. Hey, here, here's my life. I, I want to tell you what, I, here's, I, I have new truth to offer to you. So rather than withholding all that, we say, okay, Lord, I, if you want to use my mouth to share the gospel with somebody, I'm willing for that to happen. When it's not about you, you can be the one who finds the common ground. So I noticed that when Paul was in Athens, he, he wasn't going out there saying, hey, all you Athenian philosophers, meet me at the synagogue and we'll talk about really important things. Where did he meet them? He met them in their place to talk. He went to them, and he started from the premise of what they already were thinking about. Their altar to the unknown God. Uh, their poets. Their, he, he was saying, I notice, I'm looking around your city. You're religious in every way. He started where they were. He didn't ask them to change and move before they could talk about Jesus. And I think that's really important. One of the habits we can get into is we can say, well, we're talking about Jesus here at church, so if somebody needs to hear, how do I get them to church? It's not a bad impulse. I mean, it's great. Bring everybody you can to church. But this is probably not most people's first step toward Christ. We have to go out where people are, befriend them, connect with them, and then see if the Lord opens doors the way he did when Paul um, started speaking. Attached to that is this fourth observation. When it's not about you, you can care about their culture, not just yours. It's kind of fascinating that as Paul was sharing the gospel to the Athenian council, he mentioned their poets. So there was a Greek poet named, I think his name was Aratus, and he wrote this, um, this poem that was kind of a mix of poetry and science about astronomy called Phenomenon, and it had to do with constellations and stars, and then it was kind of mixed together with Greek mythology, and there was like, there's where Zeus lives, and in the poem that everybody was kind of familiar with at the time, there was this line like, and we're all his offspring, like we're all kind of coming from, from that. And Paul keys in on that, and he says, you know, that's not totally wrong. In fact, let me tell you about 
the actual God from which you come, from which you move and live and have your being. So Paul, even though he was like a learned Jew and you read all the credentials of the Pharisees, grew up in that context, somehow he had taken the time to understand the wider culture he was in. So when he was talking to those Greek philosophers, he could, he could go toe-to-toe with them because he had actually taken time to understand them. He cared about where they were starting uh, in their understanding. I wonder, I mean, maybe on a practical level, for you and I, that's like if, you know, in a conversation, you just, you, you've got a connection about work, you've got a connection about sports, you've got a connection about something in the community, or the same movie you've watched, and you, you're starting with that common ground, and you're saying, I care about where people are starting, not just where I want them to end up. Okay, the fifth observation is, um, sometimes if it's not about us, we can go ahead and change ministry if it's not working. So when it is about us, we start to defend our ministry method, right? We say, this is how we've always done it. This is how we're supposed to do it. This is how our church used to do it. Uh, This is my preference. This is how I think we should do it. So it becomes sort of self-focused in that way. But when you say it's not about me, say, you know what? Ultimately, I just want people to understand. I just want people to find Jesus. And so I'll put everything on the table when it comes to methods or styles or anything else because none of that actually matters in eternity. The thing that matters is whether or not people hear the gospel. And so I'm willing to change anything we've got here. Um, Paul was willing to change all sorts of things. And I think it's interesting, all through the book of Acts, you see them starting out with plans and then diverting. It just happens over and over and over again. Like they're going to go to this city, but nope, instead we ended up in that other city. We thought we were going to go here, but no, there was some miracle that happened that led us this direction. So here in, in chapter 18, they were trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. When they were imposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes. He left, and now he started the church of Corinth with other people, and those original people, they totally missed it. If Paul had been resolute to just keep doing the same thing over and over again, he had been insane in that way, um, there, all, so much of the movement in the book of Acts would have never happened. It took the willingness to be adaptive, the willingness to change, and that requires the humility of saying, it's not about me and I don't have anything to prove. Let's do the thing that works. Okay, so then here's the sixth observation about this. When it's not about you, you can reduce the reasons for resistance. So I look at what Paul did. Um, I think I don't know if I would exactly want to do that. Um, he shaved his head according to Jewish custom. Now, when you, when you read that paragraph, it's in verse 18, there's not a lot of reason for that to be mentioned like in the rest of the story. It's just kind of this independent little fact. You know, Paul's traveling around. It says he stops in this one place, shaves his head according to custom, fulfill a vow, and then he sailed for the next place. And you go, okay. Like Luke, the author of this, included that little detail for some reason. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Okay, there is an answer. Um, the seventh observation is that when it's not about you, you can make heroes instead of trying to be one. You, you don't have to finish the things that you start. You don't have to be the involved. So like when, when Apollo shows up, who's an amazing communicator, and Priscilla and Aquila realize that, their goal for Apollos was not, hey, we've got to get Apollos to join us. Their goal was equip him and send him. And Apollos went out and did great things for the gospel in other places that these, the first characters couldn't go to. And so I look at this mentality of when you've set yourself aside, you're no longer trying to build your thing. 
you're honestly just trying to see things multiply for the kingdom. Uh, and so you and I have that opportunity in the things that we do. Whether or not we're leaders in something, we can say, you know what, I, I don't have to be the hero of every story. Um, Lord, I'll run my race well, I'll do what I can, but, if, but I want to empower other people. I want to encourage other people. We just want the kingdom to expand. It doesn't matter who gets the credit in the end. Now, a couple observations, and I have one more text that is going to answer the shaved head question, um, so you'll want, you want to go to this one. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, but while you're turning there, I wanted to offer you a couple of my own observations as one who's really tried over a couple decades now to be a part of outreach in various ways, personally trying to reach out to people. Um, I do not bat a thousand on that. Sometimes I get done with an interaction and think I was still somehow selfish or I still miss the opportunity. Um, and, then, and then I would also say there have been times when, like church-wide, we together have tried things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. Um, here are my observations about outreach. One is we do have to expect to work hard. That was interesting. When, when, when Aquila and Priscilla, the husband and wife, connected with Paul, what was their point of connection? It was tent making. Now, that was their job. They were working. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's working as a tent maker to make ends meet so that he can do all this ministry. He didn't have some foundation funding everything behind him. He had to work along the way. Say, wow, he was working hard. Uh, and then what was he doing on his weekends? He was going to the synagogue and arguing with people and trying to win people to Christ. Like he was, he was in it all in. Uh, we also expect God to work. As we're working hard and applying our best effort to whatever it is that we're doing in our lives personally or our outreach, we also are saying, Holy Spirit, we need you to help us. Like our work isn't going to add up to tra transforming the world. We need your work to empower our work. Um, expect pushback just like they had in, the, in this day. There will be people who resist. There will be people who, whatever, hate you for... But I don't think they're quite as like, large in number as we suspect, uh, but they're out there, and that can happen. Uh, expect changes. When you, when you start engaging with outreach, when you start looking beyond yourself, your life will change. The church will change. The community will change. A whole bunch of things will change, just like we see happening in the book of Acts. And then the other observation is, I think we should expect mixed results. There will be moments when someone comes to Christ or some amazing, cool miracle happens or somebody's transformed and we pull them up and we say, wow, give your testimony, like here's how this all added up and look at the fruit of the work we were involved in. And we celebrate that. Okay, but there's also going to be times when people just slam the door and walk away and we have no idea if we even planted a seed or not. Um, that was the way it was in the book of Acts. It's still the way it is now. So we say, Lord, we want to be faithful on our, in our walk with you, faithful serving you, and we're expecting that the results will be mixed. The results will be kind of hard to measure. That, that we, don't want to, we don't want that to distract us from accomplishing our mission. All right, so wrapping up here with 1 Corinthians 9. I love this text. Now remember, Paul, we just read about Paul going to Corinth and the first few people becoming Christians in that city. So later on, he writes a letter to the people in that city, describing some things, explaining some things, answering some questions. And he actually explains why he would shave his head for the Jews, why he would quote, uh, quote Greek poetry to the people of Athens, 
why he would move around and sail around in all these different crazy directions, it all makes sense when you read what he writes, chapter 9, verse 19. He said, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. He says, I, I don't have to do what I'm doing. I don't have to serve people. But I'm choosing to serve them. I'm choosing to be like a slave, to give up myself, to say it's not about me so that I can win them. That's why he goes through all of the things he goes through along the way. He said, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Now, he could have gotten into a debate with them about all the finer points of how the law is fulfilled in Christ, and a lot of that doesn't apply, and he didn't mess with that. He said, you know what? If you need me to shave my head so that I can talk to you, great, I'll shave my head so I can talk to you. He had a higher principle than trying to prove that he was right. He wanted, that, he wanted the opportunity to minister to those people, to serve them. He says, even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. And when I am with the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. So yeah, I did read the poem about Zeus. Um, instead of judging Paul, man, Paul, why are you filling your mind with that? No, I mean, Paul was engaging with their culture. He was, whoever I'm with, I'm going to, I want to be able to converse with them so that the doors will remain open. He said, I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So he's got this higher principle that he's living by. When I'm with those, in, uh, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs? I don't know that that's technically going to be true in our 5K race, um, but you get his point. Don't you realize in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. We do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. Every moment's a mission. Every interaction is an opportunity. I'll, I'll shave my head. I'll change my lifestyle. I'll act like a Jew or act like a Gentile. That stuff doesn't matter because I'm on mission with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. The challenge here is that we can run hard for the gospel. We can expect God to work if we're willing to set ourselves aside. If we're willing to say, you know what? It's not actually about me anymore. I have a higher mission. I have a higher calling and that's the race I'm going to run. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we try to run that race together as a church. Uh, Lord, thank you for the calling that you've put on every one of our lives, that we are your ambassadors out in the world. We get to share your love. We get to share the gospel. And Lord, we get to help multiply something that's eternal, something that won't ever fade away. 
Thank you for including us in all of that. I pray that you would help us to come to the end of ourselves so that our real outreach can begin. Lord, I pray as a church family that we would welcome the opportunity to serve and share and go meet people right where they are. And Lord, I pray that individually we would have a heart that puts others first, recognizing that there's so much more going on in the world than just our own lives and that you've made us for so much more than what we're currently imagining. Lord, as we take steps forward as a church family together to reach out, would you empower those steps? Even more importantly, as we take personal steps to connect with our friends and our neighbors, our loved ones, to, to see opportunities for those people to experience the same joy that we've experienced in knowing you, I pray that we would set ourselves aside, our preferences, our styles, and instead, Lord, that we would focus in on what matters most. We look forward to the things that you'll do in us and through us. So, Holy Spirit, we ask our question that we're asking all summer right now, what do you want to do within us? What do you want to do within me? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you. We'll see you next week for more of the book of Acts.